welcome to Sparks 538's Science Podcast, where we read interesting science writing and talk about the big ideas behind it. I'm science editor Blythe Terrell, and today we're going to talk about everyone's favorite topic of late, the American healthcare system. And we're going to do that through the lens of Elizabeth Rosenthal's new book, An American Sickness. I am here today with two members of our amazing 538 science team. We have lead health writer Anna Maria Berry-Jester. Hey, Anna. Hey, Blythe. As well as lead science writer Christy Ashwanden. Hey, Christy. Hello. All right. So I'm glad we're talking about this now. Healthcare has been very much in the news, and we love policy of uh, the healthcare variety here at 538. So this is perfect timing, <laughs> um, as I'm sure all of you do as well. <laughs> um, so please, you know, we, we thanks for joining us to wonk out a little bit with <laughs> with healthcare. Um, Anna, can you give us a quick summary of an American sickness? Yeah. So an American sickness is about why healthcare costs so much in the U.S. So, like you said, Blythe, we're in the midst of this, you know, another great healthcare debate. But the bulk of that debate is about insurance coverage and who should pay for what. So Rosenthal's book kind of peels back the layers of why healthcare is so expensive in the first place. She talks through the history of healthcare, how we ended up with the system we have in the U.S. She looks at the big picture players, um, hospitals, doctors, pharmaceutical companies, and breaks down why there's so much excess cost at each of the like with each of those players. And then she she describes sort of like a lot of the nuance of like how why we have our U.S. system. So she describes how insurance went from these this thing that local charitable organizations provided to like big industry behemoth. She explains how not-for-profit religious hospitals hire specialty coders to charge for everything under the sun and then hire collections agencies to go after if you don't pay. She looks at the ways that pharmaceutical companies take drugs off the market just before their patents are going to expire to keep cheaper generic drugs out. So the list goes on and on. Um, But at the end of it all, you know, we have this system that's not a free market. There's no transparency. Patients can't find out how much a service should cost or will cost. Um, and kind of digs into you know why why we have this extremely inefficient and very costly system that we have. Yeah, to me, it seems like a, an overriding theme to the book is that this drive to profit off of healthcare has really supplanted the needs of patients and sort of taken the focus off medical outcomes and actually making people better and put the focus and emphasis instead. You know, the system is all sort of designed now to create profits. Right. And that's definitely the case that she's making. Right. I mean, and she, you know, she paints a pretty compelling picture of the ways that there are profit motives and, a, you know, an enormous profit to be made at every encounter you have with the healthcare system um, and how we kind of have this twists and turns through history that got us in this bizarre position we're in now. Right. Well, and that, you know, made me think of something that you've said, Anna, as you described some of the legislative fighting over healthcare and healthcare policy as pushing papers around. <laughs> yeah. Why, why is that? I mean, why is it? Tell me more about that. Yeah. I mean, so there's sort of two reasons for that. One is that like the debate we're having is about whether individuals or companies or the government's going to pay. But a lot of it doesn't really deal with the fundamental problem of how much we're paying. I mean, the legislation that we're talking about, it's not that people aren't aware. Yeah. So it's who's going to handle the costs, not how do we make these costs more reasonable? Right. And then there's this other thing that I think is really fascinating is maybe not the right word because it's pretty sad, but there's a real chicken and an egg here, right? So the more people have insurance, the more that every piece of the healthcare system, doctors, labs, ambulances can charge. And so the system will tolerate higher costs because so many more people are insured, but that makes it impossible for people who aren't insured. And so as costs got kind of totally out of control, it's, it's like 
there was almost this natural progression that the government was going to have to step in and do something like what happened with the Affordable Care Act. Um, but that doesn't solve the fundamental cost problem and, you know, it could in theory make it worse. Can you talk a little bit more about why things get more expensive as more people are insured? So I'm, I'm paying my monthly premium. I'm paying my like whatever it is, $1,000 a month. And I'm getting whatever services that are provided under that, under my plan, you know, based on that premium. And there's other factors that go into it, right? Like sometimes there's co-pays or deductibles. But if more things are covered, the prices of those services, if more services are covered, the, the prices of those services can change because insurers take advantage of that or maybe not. I mean, what, it, what exactly happens there? Yeah, I mean, so you have this like really fragmented system where even doctors don't know much outside of what's going on in terms of pricing outside of their field, and they don't even often know what's going on within their field, right? And so they're ordering up tests, um, you know, maybe trying to make a patient happy because they want something, or maybe trying to sort of, you know, cover their ass, if you will, um, in terms of making sure that they get, lot, you know, the diagnostics done, and they there's no question for malpractice later, and. Um, you know, patients aren't necessarily seeing each of those individual costs. And so there's nobody to sort of raise an eyebrow when a test that should cost $15 is listed at $1,000. Um, and so that sort of over time has that like lack of transparency has really made created a system where we have these ballooning costs um, at every step of the system. And Rosenthal also documents um, something that I found really interesting, actually. these I mean, so the whole system is just full of these perverse incentives that sort of, you know, uh, incentivize not necessarily the, the best behavior. But one thing that I found particularly interesting was that the, the ACA actually has this provision that sort of mandates that um, insurance companies need to spend a certain amount of, of their income, you know, of the premiums that are paid on actual medical care. And so this actually, weirdly enough, can incentivize insurance companies to pay more for some services to sort of um, make sure that they can sort of take in more income. So if you're paying, you know, $10,000 for a service that should cost $100, that's kind of increasing the, the total pot from which you need to be spending. I believe it's, uh, Anna, you probably know the, the exact numbers. It's either 80 or 85% of of the, the money they're taking in, in, in premiums needs to go toward healthcare rather than sort of overhead or whatever. So the more money that you're spending on care, the more sort of the bigger the pot is and the more money that you can actually spend on paying CEOs and things like that. Right. Christy, that point's still- out to me so much as well that like if you want executive salaries to go up you have to be there has to be more expense overall for insurance companies in order for them to take that sort of 15 percent profit and have that number grow which is just really perverse well that's what struck me too generally is this this everything is so interconnected i mean you have all these different pieces of the healthcare system and everyone every one of them is meant to generate its own profits you know even those that are are technically nonprofits are bringing in a fair are bringing in quite a bit of money and you know it's just all the all of the people who kind of have skin in the game in the healthcare system it's really kind of it's it's really astonishing to think through that and also the people who have you know a lot of vested interests in making sure that those profits don't go anywhere which is why you know getting any sort of legislation um, it was extremely hard for the ACA. You know, the the Republicans tried to tried the repeal and replace legislation. It hasn't worked out yet. Um, 
the Democrats had a moment of, of gloating. Um, but really, it's I, it sounds like it's going to be really difficult to do any sort, you know, to make any sort of additional changes. It's been it's been difficult in the past because you have all these people who are bringing in so much money through the system that exists. Yeah, Blythe. And one thing that really stood out to me is that you have all of these vested interests. You have the insurance companies, you have the hospitals, you have the drug companies. I mean, all of the, basically all of the people who are making profits off of healthcare, you have these incentives, they have money to spend on lobbying. Um, but the sort of voice that so often seems to be getting lost here is actually the patient's voice. Um, yeah, there are, uh, patient advocacy groups. A lot of them, you know, get money from some of these other places as well. Um, but you know, when you're really sick or you're facing a life threatening illness, you're scared, you're emotional. Um, you probably don't have the wherewithal, the emotional energy to do all of the research and all the things that you might do to figure out, you know, what is the best, you know, what is the best treatment that I need here? What are the possibilities that I'm faced with? You know, how, how can I make these, these decisions? So I guess what I'm really saying is like buying healthcare is not like buying a car where you just go to consumer reports and you look at the stuff and you find out because it's just a fundamentally different thing. And when you're in it, you're just really in it and you, you don't necessarily have the resources. So there's been a lot of talk about um, you know, making sure that patients have skin in the game and that they're acting as sort of better consumers of healthcare. But I think that's pretty unrealistic in a lot of, in a lot of ways. And what we, we see in this book really is that the, the forces that are sort of shaping healthcare and how it's delivered are really you know, the people who are profiting off of it rather than the patients who are you know, presumably or hopefully getting better outcomes. I mean, you know, there was a time when, when healthcare was about getting people better and that was the thing driving it. And that just seems to have really fallen by the wayside in a lot of cases. Right. And that's sort of why I would have a hard time answering that question of like how we got where we are. I mean, so because on the one hand, what you're saying, Christy, is so true. Like there's this idea that if people had skin in the game, they would, um, you know, get involved and prices wouldn't be so out of control and we wouldn't have this problem. But it's not like you really can make a choice. And also the idea that we're going to defy sort of the experts, the doctors, advice and not do the things that they tell us to is sort of, it, that seems very complicated at best for most people who interact with the medical system. Right. Like if somebody, if it, your doctor says, I'd like to order this test, I, I've i never been, I don't think I've ever said either, why are you going to order that test? Or no, please don't order that test. <laughs> to a doctor. Right. And Rosenthal argues that we should. And I, and I don't think she's wrong, but, uh, you know, there's, it, we, we should, we, we, we unfortunately have the system that we have and we're all going to have to get involved if we want to do something about it. But at the same time, it, that's a, that's a really big ask for a lot of people who don't have any background in medicine. That's right, Anna. And I think, you know, I've written a lot about overtreatment and overtesting and I get all the time. I mean, almost literally almost every week I will get letters from readers saying, hey, look, Mike, I read your stuff. My doctor is pressuring me to get these screening tests that I know I don't need. How do I push back? And in some cases, those doctors and sometimes hospitals are actually judged and rated based on how many of these tests that they do. And these are things I'm thinking specifically here of mam mammograms, um, which is something that, you know, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, which, you know, has looked at all the evidence, has said that, you know, this should really be a shared decision based on the woman's values in terms of when, how frequently to, to begin or to even do mammograms. And yet you have these doctors. I've had 
um, readers who've written me to say that their doctor is trying to drop them because they've refused to get a mammogram at age 40, even though the best science says that it's, you know, that's not um, the best decision. So, and well, and the other, the other thing I hear from people all the time lately is that, so, you know, being overweight was only recently formalized into a medical condition. And so like you have this really complicated thing where on the one hand, obesity and excess weight are leading causes of injury and death and doctors should be able to get paid for spending time with a patient. And we all know that that kind of preventive work is extremely important. On the other hand, there's very clear evidence that we're over-medicalizing this. And so I hear from communities all the time where they're being told they have pre-diabetes and they really feel like they're being taken advantage of and being told to take medications that they don't need. And when you see what sort of hospitals and the medical community has done with some of these issues, I really feel for them trying to make sense of whether they have a medical condition that they should spend a ton of their time and energy and resources on or whether they're being diagnosed so that a company can make money. Well, and when you say over-medicalized, Anna, can you talk a little bit more about that? What what you mean exactly? Right. Like, well, and if you think about sort of obesity or overweight or even this question of pre-diabetes, like, uh, are these things that people should be changing their diet and getting exercise for and spending some real quality time with a primary care physician and or a or nurse or a nutritionist, um, you know, something pretty like low level intervention? Or is this something where they should be taking medications like they're currently being prescribed? And it's, you know, there's obviously people on both sides of that, but we tend to sort of funnel people towards the, like, let's give them a pill. And that adds cost to the system overall. And also I think is really eroding people's trust in the medical system. That's kind of a separate issue. Right, Anna. And I think this gets back to the perverse incentives and, you know, our whole medical system is set up to reward doing things, right? And so, you know, there's this incentive to find new things that need treatment. And, you know, it, it always is more to the benefit of the doctor, the medical practice, the hospital to be able to, um, you know, do something rather than listen, you know, um, procedures pay more than listening. Um, watchful waiting does not get reimbursed. And so you, you really have this whole system that is driving people to do more and more and more things. And one thing that really strikes me is that patients often like this, right? Like no one wants to go to the doctor and hear, well, you know, you have a cold and most colds resolve within about five days. And so no matter what I tell you to do right now, you'll, you'll be better in a few days. And yeah, I could give you some antibiotics, which won't help you and could be actually harmful overall, but that, that won't help. You know, most people want the antibiotics, which are exactly the thing that they should not be getting. And so, but if you are, are looking at patients or using patient satisfaction as a metric, which is often done, you can actually end up driving doctors and driving medical practice away from the evidence-based care and away from the things that actually ultimately would benefit the patient the most. Okay, we're going to take a quick break to hear from this week's sponsor. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. And if you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites. And now you can. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 200-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll in to ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by Fortune 100 companies and thousands of small and medium-sized businesses. 
And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash point. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash point. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash point. All right, back to our conversation about the U.S. healthcare industry. I asked some family members about this because I have some medical folks in my family. Um, and first of all, I asked them if they'd ever been asked by a patient how much something costs. And they said no. You know, one of them has been practicing for probably five years. The other one probably more than, four, you know, 40 years. And, um, you know, at least one was said that they would not know what to say and would probably say contact billing like that. You know what? That would be the response. Um, and then also. So I thought that was interesting. And then also um, one of the my family members said that that when you're presenting options to a patient, you have to present everybody with the same options um, in the interest of, of fairness and equity. So, you know, so that was interesting to me, too. I hadn't really thought about it in terms of if you if you are a provider of medical care and and are thinking about. Um, you know, not only the the well-being of the patient, but also the rules that you have to follow are some, I don't know, you know, I don't know much about those, but are some of those rules like that, that say, okay, well, you have to present like all these options that are possible to the patient and discuss and discuss all of them with the patient, you know, and I, that made me wonder if, you know, if once you hear, okay, here are three options, one of them is complex and sounds state of the art and the other two are not, is your instinct to go with, the state of the art most complex option because that sounds like the best care. And I just wonder if, you know, I feel like there's so many layers here. Yeah, Blythe, that makes me think of the proton beam therapy example that Rosenthal uh, presents at the book. Um, proton beam therapy is this targeted uh, therapy for cancer that, that really is very, very useful in only a small handful of cases. Um, in fact, um, in in the book she talks about, I think that in England, in the UK, they actually send people to the US to get it. There's so few people that, you know, would truly benefit. But here in the US, it's become this big business. Um, these The machines that are used in this intervention are expensive, but uh, hospitals get them and then it's, you know, presented as state of the art. And why wouldn't you want to get the newfangled high-tech proton beam, you know, if if it was available to you, right? And part of it too that she that she does bring up is often these medications or these devices are when they are tested um, in medical studies, they're tested against placebo. They're not tested against existing interventions. So you don't necessarily know if it's better than the cheaper thing, but you know in at least some cases that it's better than no thing. And obviously, there's layers of that too, because sometimes it's not necessarily better than no thing at all. Well, yeah, and and then there's like this question of should we should cost be a consideration. Historically, we've really felt strongly in the United States that it should not, and people should be able to get the best treatment available. But as the system's been sort of gamed, it feels like people deserve to have that knowledge. But like, the doctors don't know how much this stuff costs. Um, You know, there's this anecdote in the book about the director of the Rhode Island Department of Health asking um, labs, how much they were charging for very basic blood tests. And it took a year and a half for him to get the answers. And this is the guy who certifies the labs, right? So like, one, how can we expect patients to be able to get this information? Right. So figuring out, that's a huge part of this book, figuring out how much things cost is extremely hard. There is no transparency. And in most cases, there's not necessarily, um, I mean, a requirement for transparency, uh, which is, which makes it really difficult on from everyone's perspective to figure out how much a procedure should cost. I mean, you know, she points out that from one hospital to the next, from one state to the next, it's the differences are vast 
in the in terms of cost of procedures and all kinds of other medical services. Right. But as a, as a journalist, I have at various times when I've been reporting on stories, tried to find, find out, you know, okay, so what's the average cost of a particular procedure? And it's very difficult, you know, if, and if a journalist can't find it out very easily, like how do you expect a patient to be able to, I mean, it's just, it's absurd to think that patients can shop around, uh, for, for medical care right now in this current system that we have. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it's a, you know, so the, the ACA exists now, and it has many challenges, uh, as you know. We've, as Anna, you've written about many times. Um, but you know, there's these challenges have been building over the years. I mean, I know Christy, you've had as a, a freelancer for a long time, had challenges with your with you know your insurance, and also living in a relatively small town. I, you want to talk through some of those? Yeah, sure. So I've been self-insured since uh, before 2000. And I can just tell you that every year, um, yeah, well, first of all, every year I get a year older, which means, you know, the way that insurance <laughs> works, you know, you're, you're sort of the help. Yeah. I know it came as, as news to certain people recently, but uh, the way that insurance works is the young, healthy people help subsidize the older or sicker people. Anyway, so of course, as you get older, the, the premiums will rise. The ACA has limited the extent to which the those premiums can can rise. But before the ACA, every year my insurance would go up uh, by quite a bit. And so what I would have to do to keep it affordable would be to get a new plan that would cover less. I would get every year, it seems that my deductible would go up. Um, I think before the ACA, I was up to like a ten or $12,000 deductible plan. And this was something that, you know, was was still costing what felt like an arm and a leg. Um, and so, so basically every year I was getting crappier, crappier insurance and paying a little, you know, to pay even close to what I've been paying the previous year. So, yeah, the bottom line is that costs, the cost of premiums have been rising quite a bit. And one of the problems with the ACA is that it really doesn't do anything to address costs. It does very little. Um, the purpose of the ACA was really more about trying to get more people covered rather than trying to, you know, control the, these runaway costs. And so what's happened now is that I live in a, a small community in Western Colorado. We have some of the most expensive healthcare premiums in the country. And what that means is, um, you know, there are a lot of people like me who don't, you know, we make too much money to get subsidies, but are finding the premiums unaffordable. And some of this, you know, back in the days before ACA, I could just get a lousy policy, um, which wouldn't cover much. Um, it was still pretty expensive, but you know, I could I could pay some money and at least have something covered. Now I no longer have the option to get the sort of crappy plan. All of those plans have gone away. You know, all of the ACA plans uh, mandate that certain stuff is covered, and that just increases the cost. And so what you have is a lot of people who now can't afford any insurance. And, you know, that's really, it goes back to this issue of cost, which is something that the ACA was just never designed to address. Yeah. And, you know, that's because my plan before the ACA, Christy, was also $15,000 deductible that I paid, I think, $310 a month for in Florida. I mean, it was like really expensive and it covered nothing. Um, and so, but what's funny is that the way, like also even before the ACA, like the way that those prices were listed, that plan actually looked like it was a lot cheaper on paper, but then they would start taking into account that I was a woman. And so they always charge you more for that. They take into account your age. They take into account a bunch of other things. They've got, you know, toss it into their algorithm and then spit out an individual price that would be pretty 
outrageous, but it's like the idea of shopping around for coverage then was really complicated. Now it's a little bit easier, but it's also just very expensive. It is. But I I will say one thing the ACA did that I think is important is it allowed a lot of people, um, you know, to go off on their own and become freelancers to start their own businesses. I personally know of of several people who ended up uh, before the ACA having to go get uh, corporate jobs because they were uninsurable because of pre-existing conditions. And in some cases, these pre-existing conditions were, were minor things that no one would think, you know, was was a big deal. Um, in one case, it was someone who had taken um, antidepressants for six months, like five years previous and never again. And that person could no longer like it wasn't just that that she couldn't afford it, but she couldn't she couldn't even get the insurance. So, so I don't think that we should dismiss, you know, some of the things that the ACA did. Um, but yeah, it was sort of, you know, it only fixed some problems. Yeah. And I think the larger point that you started off making Christy is what's most relevant. The, the idea that the ACA doesn't address the systemic problems with cost of care in the U S and there's a ton of examples in the book, too. I mean, and there's also, you know, people, it, this is not the first piece of writing that has addressed the fact that healthcare in the U.S. is extraordinarily expensive. Yeah, the, the book's really over, overwhelming. And, you know, Ros- Rosenthal does this, like, really nice job at the end of sort of trying to give people tools that they can use to sort of take on the, com- you know, combat the problems with the system, like, one person at a time. And I think that's really useful. But as I was reading through the book, I also felt like I, like I just you get to the point where you're like, I don't really quite know how you solve some of this stuff, except at like a very systematic level. Right. Like, can it be without legislation? I want to, before we talk about the solutions piece, I want to talk about um, some of the, the other factors related to the cost. Um, everyone's favorite punching bag, pharma. <laughs> let's talk about, <laughs> right. let's talk about yes. drug prices. <laughs> yes. I've got things to say. Yes. <laughs> I, sometimes I, I do wonder, you know, it's, it's, it's almost, it's like too easy to get upset with pharma. Um, but sometimes Although, valid. But yeah. there's something really interesting mm-hmm. there, Blythe, which is that in the ni- late nineties, people loved pharmaceutical companies and had really positive oh, feelings towards them. And now they have really negative feelings. And that's partly because things have changed. They, they, like the system that we're seeing now was not always that way. Um, in, in the book, Rosenthal uses this very famous quote that is really kind of amazing um, from this guy, Jonas Salk, who invented the polio vaccine, where um, he was asked who owned the patent. And he said, well, the people, I would say, there is no patent. Could you patent the sun? And it kind of goes on to describe how the legal thinking at the time was that because it was built on publicly funded research, it wasn't patentable, and also because it involved a bunch of scientific processes that had been used already elsewhere, it wasn't patentable. And then you take, now you have, um, there's a very interesting debate that I don't think a lot of people in the U.S. know about, which is that we have these really expensive drugs for hepatitis C, and they cause huge headlines, right? They're like eighty dollars to $100,000 to treat per person. Um, they're extremely effective, though. But in other countries, they're debating about whether or not that sh- those should be patented. China and Ukraine have already revoked those patents, and other countries are... Um, Re, uh, reviewing right now whether they want to, because there's this argument that the the technology that's in those drugs is built off of um, technology that was used to create drugs to treat HIV, and that it's not sufficiently different. And it, I think there's a pretty good argument that if you like looked at it through a historical lens, that in the past it would not have been oh, patentable. So interesting. interesting. I mean, and then there's also the thing that in before I think it was like 1980, um, you couldn't 
get a patent off of government funded research. I mean, our ideas have fundamentally changed about sort of how, who should be able to be rewarded in the system that we have. Yeah. Right. Well, so, I mean, one of the things that she goes through in, you know, the patent system is really complicated and I don't claim to understand exactly how it works, but there, but drug companies do engage in a lot of very um, interesting behaviors to try to keep patents on their medications so that other companies can't make generics and sell them for cheaper. Um, you know, in some cases I thought it was really interesting. They will pay the company that wants to make a, gen- a generic to hold off. Yeah. <laughs> so, so they can keep selling their branded version. <laughs> um, we should also probably say, you know, the, the case that drug makers try to make is that, you know, research and development is expensive. They say it can be more than a billion. Um, Rosenthal cites studies in the book that argue that it's more like 43 million to 125 million, which is still a lot of money, um, but quite different from a billion, obviously. Um, you're welcome. I'm very good at numbers. But um, yeah, but you just, yeah, so it's, I mean, so yeah, of course there are costs involved with bringing a drug to market and also doing the research and development and you're going to be trying things that aren't working. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I do understand that that's not, uh, you know, that, that, that stuff isn't free, but it still seems extraordinary. Some of it is publicly funded though. I think it's worth pointing that out. Right. You know, that it's not just, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on and and I, you know, funded by the NIH and other public, public funders, you know, that, that benefit pharma. And I don't think that most people would say, you know, that that's necessarily a bad thing, um, but it needs to be factored in. And so that, that is not necessarily just money that the pharmaceuticals themselves are spending to develop the drugs. Right. And so like, we don't require any transparency about how drug companies set their prices, which is something that's actually quite a popular idea. Um, and, you know, to be to be fair, there's also the argument that, um, you know, the U.S. is footing the bill because every other country is <laughs> sort of controlling their drug prices, that the, the profit needs to come from somewhere. And so it's coming from the U.S. I, I mean, I think obviously we all know there's an enormous amount of inefficiency built into the system, even if that is the case. But, um, you know, the fact that there isn't any transparency makes it really difficult to say what is going on. Mm hmm. And one another stat from Rosenthal, you know, she said that the she notes that the pharmaceutical industry has grown twice as fast as the rest of the economy since 1990. So, obvious. I mean, it's so yes, like they're they're, do, they're doing you know in many cases coming you know creating drugs like the the Hep C drugs that make can make a huge difference in people's lives, but also you know they're the profits are coming in. You know, it's you know it's a it's a, a pretty incredible amount of money. Um, one of my favorite patent stories from the book is uh, was about Loestrin, this birth control pill. <laughs> Do you guys remember that one? The, yep. uh, <laughs> the yeah. manufacturer, <laughs> Warner Chilcott, they um, were trying to stave off generics, according to Rosenthal in the book. And they decided to make a chewable version of the birth control pill. Like that was their innovation that was going to keep it on patent. And I just, it was, I mean, as I was reading that, I was like, I don't, I don't want to take a birth control pill like a Flintstone vitamin. You know, it's like nothing about that is appealing to me. But it really, it 
really goes to show what what they'll go through, right? To try and try and keep this. And mm-hmm. I know they also will do things like um, finding new uses for for drugs. So you know, there was one particular birth control pill that was being marketed a lot for um, improving your skin, so clearing up acne and and whatnot. And so you know, so much of the profits are are taken by you know not by necessarily doing things that are saving people's lives, but are sort of you know for the the mostly healthy well people and so that that's another factor to consider here right and when these sort of uh improvements are um put to market they're also often taking away an existing treatment mm-hmm. right so that's you're getting something new but it's also replacing something that maybe worked really well for you or that you really liked exactly yeah and that off-label use that christy is talking about um is interesting too i mean i we I saw a story the other day about Arizona, um, and a new law there that is going to, I believe, allow uh, pharmaceutical companies to promote off-label uses. So, you know, uses that uh, of a drug that are not necessarily its primary indication and haven't been, in, in my understanding, haven't been tested in the same way uh, through like the FDA process. So right now, once a drug is on the market, doctors are allowed to prescribe it however they want. And the FDA does, um, they do sort of oversee how the drug companies can market them. And so companies aren't allowed to do a lot of, you know, they can't have direct to consumer ads advertising, you know, this off label use, but they can use a lot of other tricks to sort of, you know, suggest these things to doctors. And they, they do a lot of things like they will target what they call decision leaders or thought leaders, you know, influential doctors, you know, to try things and to, you know, spread, spread these ideas to their colleagues. And so, you know, basically once they get, once, if they can just get the drug approved for something, then they can try and really expand the market through these other ways that don't have to go through all of the clinical trials. Yeah. Well, and one thing I think that's really interesting about that is that there's like, there's not a lot of you know, like, so we're one of two countries in the world where um, pharmaceuticals can advertise directly to consumers. And people like that, right? And if you, in some polling that's been done, when you ask people whether they think, so most people agree that there's a problem with drug prices, like that poll's really, really high. But if you ask them whether they think the free market or government regulation is going to do a better job of keeping costs down, there's a slight majority support for free market. Now, when you start asking about sort of individual ways to deal with it, there's definitely a, a lot of desire for some government intervention. But we have these, you know, we have a really free market value-based um, system in our in our hearts and minds here in the U.S. And so it, the sort of challenges to like, when, you know, when you're talking about like off-label off, uh, off uses and stuff, like people don't want those things regulated. Right. Well, the argument, I think, is often a freedom of speech one that, um, you know, that pharmaceutical companies make. And that argument sounds pretty good. I mean, I think Americans like freedom of speech. So I think it's, you know, whenever you're making that argument, you're depending, I suppose, on what you're what exactly you're arguing. But that's often, I, I think, pretty compelling. People are like, oh, well, it's not fair for you to right to regulate what people can can and can't say about something yeah it's it's pretty terrible when you you know if we're going to regulate companies <laughs> from making unsubstantiated claims if they want to make them, right but right so i mean the freedom of speech argument and um you know i mean that there are a lot of american values that are also wrapped up in the healthcare system and that makes it even more difficult to figure out how we could potentially get prices down which brings me to my question um 
what so if the US wanted to hack away at these costs and and do something to bring down the cost of care what are the realistic options like what are the arguments people are making in terms of policy like what do people think would work I just want to point out that it was interesting to me that it didn't really seem like Rosenthal made a big case for this. Like she did a very good job of sort of pointing out what was wrong. But in the end, she sort of comes down to um, patients and consumers, you know, the, the very small and potentially ineffective things that they can do. But she didn't really tackle sort of the big picture, like what what, what could be done at a systemic, you know, sort of um, institution level, right? Right. I think that um, the, you know, the subtitle of the book is, um, how healthcare became a big business and how you can take it back. I mean, it's definitely an individual guide. It's not a it's not a book that's focused on policy. And I don't know if that's maybe that's something you know. Anna's going to interview Elizabeth Rosenthal um, as the second part of this podcast. Maybe that's something you can ask her, Anna, why she decided to focus on individuals versus um, you know policy. Um, but what I think, but I think the policy side, you know, I mean, yeah, I think it's you know, I, I think. It's interesting to think about sort of a populist view of healthcare, like how do people take their healthcare costs back? Um, but I am more interested for our purposes in like in in policy because to me it feels like there has to be some kind of there has to be something you could do at a policy level eventually. Maybe it's not you know maybe it's twenty years from now, but there has to be something. Well, and I am going to ask Rosenthal about that. But you know, one thing I suspect is that and I find this really interesting, is that there's not a lot of agreement and it's all really um, trapped in very coded, like heavy language that's very um, political and problematic. And so I, I almost wonder if there's not an argument that it has to be, you know, we have to all sort of individually understand this problem and be outraged by it in order for us to get to a point where there can be policy change. Um and so, you know, for example, like a, you know, 70 something percent of people think that there's a problem with drug prices. But then when you ask what we should do about it, you know, there's really varying feelings about it. And similarly, um, you know, polling that looks at what we should do about insurance costs, it, it like all matters in the phrasing and what you ask in terms of how people respond to it. And so like the Kaiser Family Foundation asked people last year, how they felt about Medicare for all, and almost two-thirds of people had a positive reaction to it. But then when you called it guaranteed universal health coverage, the support went down. When you called it single-payer, mm -hmm, it went right. down even further. And when you called it socialized medicine, it got even further. Even though we are actually talking about similarly, like fundamentally similar concepts. So that really, and to me, what that suggests is that this issue has become so politicized that it's very difficult to talk about the actual sort of fundamental workings of systems, um, you know, without getting trapped into these sort of belief systems about political ideas or this us versus them sort of team player mentality. So that instead of saying, okay, we have this problem here, you know, I don't think that we're even having these conversations right right now about like what should be the purpose of our healthcare system like what what are the outcomes that we want you know does this thing should this thing exist to make people better you know how important is it that you know hospitals and these systems make a profit you know is it a fundamental thing that we need to make sure that uh, health insurance companies stay around and they continue to make profits you know because one argument that's sometimes made is that if we were to adopt some sort of universal healthcare system you know that that would put a lot of existing businesses, you know, out of, out of, out of play. And, you know, 
can we do that? Um, but we're not really having these conversations in terms of like, what, what can we all agree on? What, what are the things that people really want from the healthcare system? It's really being framed in sort of political terms. And then that makes it really hard to even, you know, sort of get anywhere with this. Right. Right. And I mean, how we handle healthcare is really one of the most fundamental questions you can ask about how we organize ourselves as a society. Um, and, one thing I will say, though, is that it's very interesting to me, and I think about this all the time, is that one of the few things that there is majority support for, and of course it depends on how you ask the question, is some sort of government-based system that would guarantee health insurance to everybody. Um, and yet that is like a political non-starter. Right. I mean, so that's, but at the same time, too, you know, if costs keep going up, premiums keep going up. To me, there has to be a, a breaking point at which people say, this is absurd. Either I or somebody I know has been adversely affected by this. I mean, it's probably true now. Um, and it's not, and, you know, people don't think that's fair. Like, it just, it, to me, it seems like it, at some point people will, will start to rally around it if, if it, there's recognition that, like, every single American pretty much interacts with the healthcare system. And everyone's going to face these ca- costs at some point. And I'm curious to know what you th- what you think about this, about whether we're approaching some sort of breaking point, like Blythe was just saying, and whether that might sort of explain some of what we just saw, um, you know, with the Republicans' failure. With the, to the yeah, HCA. I mean, I, I think yeah. there's a pretty decent argument that that's part of why the ACA went through is because we'd gotten to a point where it was people who were uninsured were in really dire straits if something happened to them. You know, you could go spend a night in the hospital and get a $100,000 bill. You have, if you have a serious injury or ailment, like it destroys your financial life for, you know, the rest for, that's it, like you're done. And so I, I do think that's sort of part of the reason that we got to a point where that was pushed through it. You know, that was the ACA happened after numerous major attempts at, at overhaul. Um, and so that was sort of covered the insurance part, but it's less clear to me how you go about dealing with the cost part because we have such sort of fundamentally different views about how the system should work. But yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's pretty good, um, argument that we are, we are at a point where we have to, we have to start having those fundamental conversations. It makes me wonder, are there any nonprofits out there whose mission is to like get everybody on the same page on healthcare? Um, because it seems like there's space for something like that, right? Like somebody who's like, look, let's, let's take a nonpartisan look at this and sit down and have a conversation about, you know, what people need to be advocating for, or even, you know, if it is a populist uprising and people contacting their, their lawmakers, you know, and, and, and suggesting how that they really do think that the system needs to change. I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm naive. I'm like, let's. Why can't people just go out there and write their congress, their congresswoman, and tell her what to do? It's not naive, but it's. I mean, I don't even know what that would mean by partisan, right? It is so partisan yeah. the way that we view these fundamental questions, right? And as you know, we sort of alluded to and mentioned earlier, there's so much money wrapped up in in this. I mean, the medical and health industry spends more money on lobbying than what, like oil and gas and finance. I mean. And defense than anyone, yeah, yeah, than anyone. So, and yeah, I mean, and I don't know. It's, it, I think it's hard to sometimes parse out exactly what the impacts of that kind of campaign, you know, campaign funding is. But 
I was looking at some numbers before we started talking today, and I mean, there were, you know, especially like from just from this last election, like there are Hillary Clinton got a ton of money from everyone across the board from, you know, medical, you know, medical, pharmaceutical industry, hospitals. I mean, and at some point, it's just hard, you know, it's hard to believe that that money doesn't have some kind of an impact. And I think you can see it (laughs) what we what we have. Yeah, it keeps the momentum going in the direction of the system that we have right now. And people, you know, all these different players in the healthcare world are, are making money. And also, to be fair, though, like it's, you know, it's easy to criticize doctors for order too many, ordering too many tests and that kind of thing. But like some of this they have to do in order to get paid because the system is like built up around this. You know, it's, it's like everyone's sort of out there trying to make money, but definitely also trying to survive in the system that we have. And so if we were going to talk about some real change, it would really disrupt everything. It's really tough. One of the things the ACA did was it put aside some money for something called CER, Comparative Effectiveness Research. And so the idea is like, you know, we should really be using treatments that work and we should like figure out what works and we should compare things and and try and do this. But whenever you start talking about this, what immediately happens is people start shouting about rationing and it's about, oh, you you want to, you know, (laughs) prevent people from having the treatments of their choice. And so, you know, it's just very difficult to sort of have reason-based discussions about this because people have such strong beliefs and ideas about this. And there are so many value judgments that sort of inherently have to go into these decisions. So, you know, it's, it's also not the case to say that, you know, science can just, you know, explain all of these things and tell us which treatments we should be using and which we can't. Um, But even, you know, small attempts to make our our medical care more scientific and more evidence-based just bump up against this enormous backlash, which makes it really difficult to get anywhere. Well, and I'm I'm glad you brought that up, Christy, because that's one of the most hated parts of the law, especially among certain physicians groups, because they say it really destroys the doctor-patient relationship and tells them what they can and can't do and what they can and can't prescribe. And our Secretary of Health and Human Services, Tom Price, has been extremely vocal against those very things that were set up to try and see what we could do about determining what was best for the patient and also cost efficient. So yeah, it's it's extremely simple. <laughs> once you read the, once you read this book you'll have all the answers um as as we do which which was very obvious from our conversation today um but it really i mean it's fascinating it's just I, it really, really is very complicated. And I think, you know, as Anna just said, I think it's easy to cast blame on any number of different parties, but really every every everything is tied to the same system and it all sort of you know, was built up together. So it's it's not really very fair to cast blame on any one particular part of the healthcare industry, I don't think. Well, it's just, it's a, it's a giant feedback loop and it all is feeding off it itself. And so, you know, all of the incentives push people, you know, to do things that are going to benefit them, but it's sort of, you know, it's a chicken or egg problem. And at some point it's like, how do you get off that, that feedback loop? I mean, how do you stop it? And I think that's really where we're at. Yeah. I mean, I think at the beginning too, she says something about how the system would have to basically be blown up, which maybe again is why she's like, here are some practical solutions absent blowing up the system on how you can, you know, try to keep your personal medical costs down. So maybe that's, maybe that that makes a lot of sense. Um, I mean, I definitely thought the individual advice she gave was useful, even though, as you know, you both mentioned, it's hard for patients to push back against what their doctor is suggesting. Any, any final thoughts before I ask you all what you, if you'd recommend the book? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I would just to that last point, I, there are a bunch of really useful things here that I think even if they're sort of difficult in practice, they really give you a lot of sense of how the system works and things that you could do to make sure that you're not, you know, incurring ex- excessive medical bills. And uh, so even though I'm, I'm not sure, like, it's not clear to me how that changes the system at large, mm-hmm. I still think there's a lot of useful tips there to learn. Okay, so Christy, would you recommend An American Sickness by Elizabeth Rosenthal? Yes, without hesitation. I thought it was a fantastic, uh, fantastic sort of presentation of what's going on with our healthcare system, why we have the problems that we have. Um, it's a really good history, sort of how we how we got here. Um, and again, I, I think that the the tips, the practical tips at the end, are helpful. I don't think that they're they're going to be enough to solve solve all these problems. And she, you know, to her credit, she's not presenting them in that way. But I would recommend anyone who's at all interested in these issues to read it. It's just very accessible, well-researched um, sort of survey of this entire field and these problems that are not going to go away anytime soon. Anna, what about you? Yeah, I would definitely recommend it without hesitation. And kind of adding on to what Christy said, I, I'd almost definitely recommend it to even people who aren't that interested in healthcare, because, you know, there's a lot of people who get employer-sponsored health insurance and have pretty good health insurance and are maybe things that they could learn about ways that they could help keep costs down over, you know, across the board, um, which are really important. Um, and I like Christy, I really appreciated the sort of historical basis by which you saw how we got where we are today. Kind of gives you some ideas about maybe there's you know ways we could walk it back. Um, and I think it's just incredibly useful for sort of understanding why we have the system we have. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. How about you, Blythe? Yeah, yeah, I would recommend it for sure for the reasons stated already. <laughs> um, yeah, it is. It really is fascinating, and I appreciated the breakdown of sort of an area-by-area look at all the different contributors to the cost. Um, There's much, much more in there than we were able to cover today. So I would definitely recommend. All right. That's it for today. Thanks so much, Anna Maria Berry-Jester. Thanks. Thank you, Christy Ashwanden. Great to be here. All right. And that's it for this episode of Sparks, where we talked about the big ideas related to the massively expensive U.S. healthcare system and an American sickness In the second part of this episode, Anna will be talking with author Elizabeth Rosenthal, so stay tuned. Thanks to our producers Chadwick Matlin and Jody Avergan, and thanks to Tony Chow and Jorge Estrada for production assistance. Katie Ferguson is our editor. The What's the Point music is by Hrishikesh Herway. As you know, we do this podcast every month in the What's the Point feed. Please subscribe now so you don't miss an episode and help spread the word. And let us know what you think by emailing podcasts at 538.com with any comments or suggestions. I'm Blythe Terrell. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.